should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here. I'm so excited and happy to be in the studio and actually producing shows and not replaying shows for you. So I hope that this stays consistent so long as I can continue waking up <laughs> and not have to, you know, be so um, busy and bogged down with San Francisco Pride. I still haven't made up my mind yet if I want to continue for another year. Uh, certainly there have been a lot of discussions about staying on as a, uh, a woman of color, a queer woman of color, a nonconforming woman of color as its board president um, and kind of using the platform to talk about issues that impact our community. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, sleep on it, but I'm going to talk about other issues that impact our community. And I still have until August to decide if you have thoughts around it, you certainly can reach out to me by heading to my website, michellemeow.com. Kenny, you're in studio and, you know, we've been talking a whole lot about heavy stuff politically. uh, And I want to switch gears a little bit, something else that I thought was worth discussing would be your opinion on the Kim Kardashian Taylor Swift uh I guess fight <laughs> or spat or whatever you want to call it um I to me it's just for the media they want to blow it up and hype everything up but I say Taylor Swift is playing the victim a little bit so you're your team Kim Kardashian I uh, yeah I guess it I mean, she has proof that Taylor, you know, had approval from, uh, you know, uh, Of Kanye's yeah. infamous line or, um, yeah. you know, uh, I don't even want to say his lines on the on the show. It's just re- really would be reducing down the intelligence level of what we talk about here. But at the same time, I wanted to get your opinion because, you know, this is very important. This whole thing about social media and and what we say, what we do. Um, and with Kim pretty much capturing that conversation and recording it, I actually, I have a problem with that. How do you feel about privacy? I mean, do, does, does privacy matter to you as much as it matters to me? You're a lot younger than me, and it feels that social media has really taken a little bit of your privacy. And you might be okay with that. Um, yeah, I do like my privacy. It's, you know. I like to keep stuff to myself. I, you know. I guess, so I guess I'm asking you, how would you feel if somebody taped oh, the conversation okay. you were having and posted it on Snapchat and happened to have millions of followers? Without my consent, yeah, I'd be kind of just, yo, what are you doing? <laughs> well, it's nice to know that millennials still think about privacy. Uh, but speaking of social media, our, our guest today is, is definitely 
um, has been very vocal about some of the issues that impact our community from a political point of view, from a, a you know from the racial issues that we uh, face, and has been very successful in using that platform um, to talk about these issues and make it go viral. So uh, you know. Thank God he's not using it for the same reason as Kim Kardashian. He certainly is a hero in in my <laughs> book. And so let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is Rainier Maningding, and he is the creator of The Love Life of an Asian Guy. Um, some of you, if you are recently turned on to his work, will know him because of the uh, the shares or a photo that he shared that went viral. And that was a photo of a young African-American woman who looked in peaceful and she's surrounded by police uh, officers who look like they were going to war with all this military gear. Um, and so I think that that photo spoke volumes of just what we're facing here in this country. So let's welcome Rainier to the program. Rainier, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, love, 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 love your work, which all of it is a discussion of race relationships, politics, decolonization, Asian American and people of color identities. Um, and, and I just, uh, every time you post something, I get so excited about it. Let's talk about that photo though, that many of us can't get that image out of our minds. Um, and, and, and if, if you thought that it was going to go as viral as it did. You know, when I saw it, um, you know, I, I'm I'm a photographer, so I sort of I immediately thought for sort of its photographic value, and I was like, wow, you know, it's, a, it's a really beautiful photo. And I sort of took a look at it, and I was moved because it was so symbolic of the way that uh, not only race relations are like in America, but the commentary on police brutality and the commentary on Black Lives Matter, um, and just this image of this woman in the summer dress, you know, the summer dress that doesn't have pockets, that she can't conceal anything. She's obviously not a threat to anybody. All of her possessions she's holding in her hand. And you have these two men in riot gear. I mean, they look like they're ready to go ahead and, you know, go to war, like you were saying. And she just seemed so calm. And it was almost, it was almost as if this expression on her face was, you know, I knew that this is this was going to happen because this is what America is like. Mm-hmm. It was um, I felt like it was just this ultimate thesis statement of police brutality and the relationship between police and black communities. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you know even during today's time and now that we have access to things like social media that can create. Um, you know, uh, you can spread truth if you want to spread truth from a viral level and reaching like millions of people without actually having to get the permission of, uh, you know, something like an old uh, media tradition like TV, right? It used to have to be that way. You had to beg the radio station or the television station to share your story. Now we have access to these things on our own. But at the same time, what's interesting to me uh, would be that there, it seems split. It seems the country is divided on this issue of police and its treatment and relationship with people of color, especially uh, the black community. What are your thoughts in that, you know, you see several hundred and thousands of comments and, and likes and dislikes <laughs> in, in your posts um, 
and that, you know, are people really that uh, divided? Do they really not see that the police, in fact, does target, harass, uh, and profile the black community? Yeah, the, um, the thing about social media, as far as it being a platform for politics and our discussions on race relations, is that sort of the overall question that I've always had was, you know, are race relations in America getting any better or is it getting any worse? And is it just because social media has allowed us to see this, you know, right in front of our eyes because people are tweeting about it every single day? Or have we always been this racist? Have we always been this bad? Mm-hmm. But then again, um, I think it's also a great opportunity because you'll have a lot of people who would have never had this opportunity to talk to people of color on social media and ask questions that you want to ask. Because before... It was like, okay, well, you know, if I just so happen to have a friend who's black who is open to talking to me about these things, then maybe if I'm comfortable, I can ask him these questions. Now it's like, you know, someone will respond to your racist retweet and correct you. So in some ways, you know, it can amplify um, people's bigotry, and in other cases, it can water it down and, you know, perhaps educate them. So it's, mm-hmm. um, I guess it really depends on whether or not you're more optimistic about it or whether you're more pessimistic. Mm. I, I tend to think that if, the more I read on social media, the more uh, pessimistic and, and, and negative I become because I, then I get so angry that people are actually saying these things. But maybe for you, you, you kind of deal with the, the trolling much better than us standard humans do. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, the the trolls, they're they're out there and they're really ugly. And, and, and uh, that's kind of what they do all day long. And it's not even like. Yeah, who knows what the truth is behind the mask that they wear? But how do you handle trolls? You know, the I think that is probably um, the one thing that makes social media really just um, it, it's making a lot of people shy away from the platform just in general. I mean, for me, I've I mean, I I legitimately have like chest pains after I'm on on my Facebook page for a while because some of the stuff that you read is horrible. I mean, um, I have a, a group of moderators on my, on my page who help me uh, sort through the comments and make sure that any of the really racist ones are, are removed so we can foster a positive community. And one of the women, uh, she's a black woman, and she, at the time she was still pregnant, and this kid who was probably, you know, the size of my thumb was like 14 years old was saying, calling her the N word and saying that he wishes her baby would die. Mm. And so I think for a lot of people, for a lot of marginalized um, people, especially for women, especially for women of color, especially for um, uh, uh, trans communities, it has in, in one way, it's like, you know, it's, it's, Social media is amazing because it allows them to, to to amplify their voice and to have it heard, be heard by other people. But at the same time, it makes the harassment super easy to come by because people can just send you these messages. And, you know, um, women of color, especially on my page, they get it all the time from these just random people who aren't even a part of my page. Ugh. And so for me, I, for me personally, I've sort of, developed a thick skin and I can handle the trolls. But at the same time, I'm a straight says Asian male. Like it, you can only hurt me so much. 
Mm-hmm. Um, whereas some of the women on my page, it's different. You know, when they're threatening those women, they will actually go through and follow and, you know, go to their house. But for me, you know, as a, as a man, it's different. Let's go back to race relations um, and just kind of that is also a focus of your blog and your work that you do at the love life of an Asian guy. Um, You know, I'm a a Southeast Asian lesbian female. You're straight. um, I think Pacific Islander Asian guy, right? Filipino. Yeah. Why should we care? I think that that's that's a large that's a very important question, in my opinion, considering that, uh, you know, it feels like where this country's headed is when we talk about the black community, it's always the black community against everyone else. And so, you know, as people of color, um, why should we discuss these issues? And, and of course, why shall we support the black community? Well, I think it's important to understand that race relations in America, they aren't we often we often like to think of things in this black and white perspective, in this um, this this way of you know racism if that is affecting black people is only affecting black people. And I I don't want to say this as if like oh well we only should support black communities because we are somehow affected by it, but um, I think it's important for non-black people of color to also be invested because um, one just from the most basic standpoint I mean you're talking about people's humanity you're talking about people who are being murdered on camera every single day. I mean, I think as a, as a human, as an American citizen, you should care about that. You know, I mean, why is it that we have this gut reaction when something happens in France or something happens in Germany and we, you know, we cry our eyes out and, and we change um, our profile picture and we have an overlay of France when something happens. When something happens over here to black people, somehow we think that it is just, you know, one and the same. It's like, oh, well, you know, that's just, what, that's America. That's, you know, that's what happens. I think that we need to have, um, we need to be more involved because um, this is our issue too. And for non-black people of color, they need to understand that black communities have supported us significantly. I mean, for uh, for Asian Americans in particular, um, a lot of immigration reform was supported by black communities. Um, during, the Vietnam, during the Vietnam War, the people who were protesting the Vietnam War were black communities. When refugees from the war were coming over to the United States, they were moving into black communities. And so I think for Asian people, oftentimes we forget those things, and we forget mm-hmm. that the stepping stones that were laid out for our success mm-hmm. were laid by black communities. And, you know, not even just Asian people, but I think all people of color, and, and, and we've all had this hand at, you know, influencing each other's success. And I think it's important to, to understand that now at this point, you know, um, we need to have all hands on deck and we need to make sure that we take care of our other communities of color and especially black communities. Oh, I love what you just said there. And it's it's obviously exactly where I stand. Um, and just the other day I said, you know, in order to end racism in this country, uh, period, we should start with ending black racism where it all began. Uh, Rainier, I'm going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to continue our discussion and talk a little bit more about the love life of an Asian guy and several other points that you bring up on your Facebook page and your blog. So don't go away. OK. Show continues right after this. Don't go away. 
You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale.com. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here. I've got a fascinating and exciting guest, Rainier Meningding, who is the creator of The Love Life of an Asian Guy. You should absolutely follow him. I love all of his posts and everything that he has to say. Um, so, Rainier, I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you this, you know, this, this question, and, and it's very vague, and I think that you would have, um, you know, some great things to say about it, but, you know, People oftentimes, especially right now, as we're discussing race relations, will will say, you know, how am I being racist? And so, you know, some I, I find a lot of people completely unaware um, when we're talking about racism. It's almost as if like it's just comes out uh, as natural as it is to stick your keys in your ignition to turn on your car. What are your thoughts? What 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 is racism today? How can people be a racist and not even know it? Well, I think a lot of. I mean, I, I guess you can sort of divide into into a number of categories. I, I like to section up into two different parts. So one of them would be sort of known racism that everyone understands is problematic. You're not supposed to say. Um, and you're not supposed to talk like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other forms of racism that I feel like, I, in one way, I feel like it's a lack of education, but other time, I feel like it's you know it's it's either laziness because we've had these discussions, such as cultural appropriation. You know, why you shouldn't wear a an indigenous um, address or why you shouldn't. Um, uh, pull your eyes back um, and try to mock, uh, you know, uh, Asian uh, facial features. And so I think for racism, it's 
on that second level where at, where it's I feel like it's a little bit deeper and it's not it goes beyond just an insult that you can hurl at someone you know this type of racism um, it perpetuates more than just stereotypes it perpetuates um, ideologies and it perpetuates um, environments that can have real uh, effects on people so for example you know if you are talking about um, this idea that Say, for example, um, you know, Asian people are the model minority, and you're, and you're right. talking about this idea of Asian people as being unanimously smart and and rich and successful and whatnot. Um, that could be racist, and that is racist because what you end up doing is you start to minimize and you start to shine a spotlight on sort of the most successful Asians, but you ignore all the ones who are not, and you start to realize that there are a lot more impoverished and, you know, impoverished Asians or Asians who are disabled or Asians who, mm-hmm. you know, who are, 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 are homeless um, that you are now ignoring because you chose to see them in this sort of model minority light. Or if you're talking about black communities, um, you know, by, by painting them as either, you know, the, the athlete or as the gangster. Um, you're also marginalizing voices and opinions and experiences uh, of of black folks who are trans or black folks who are into science. And, you know, it has these lasting effects to the point where those people of color start to internalize that and they start to... It, it has, you know, unbelievable effects on their life, you know. Like, you always hear about these stories of, of black men who are unbelievably gifted um, students, but they never have that encouragement from their teachers, from their white teachers, because they always peg them as, oh, you're going to be an athlete, but you're not going to be smart. Mm-hmm. So you're having all these talented, brilliant black minds who could have been engineers, who could have been scientists, who could have been politicians, but because our society perceives them as only being athletes and as only being, you know, rebels and thugs, that you're missing out on so many of these opportunities for people to really shine and be themselves. Mm -hmm. I want to add to that as well. You know, oftentimes um, we'll find uh, liberal activists, white liberal activists who want to use the platform to discuss, you know, just their own opinions and their judgments and their discussions surrounding race relations. And I can't stress enough in which I think that now would be a good time to allow for for the black community, for people of color, for all of us to speak our minds. And, and, you know, there's, there's this, um, not that to say that that's racism in itself, but it can come off as racist if you just won't allow for us to talk and give us the platform to do that. Um, which I find it happens in social media as well. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, it's, it's sort of, um, epitomized by this one photo. Um, it went viral. It was this, this white woman who, a photo of herself, um, and she was from a news, a pop, very popular news site. She said, "Hey, you know, look at me uh, at the boardroom meeting um, with all the editors. Uh, do you notice anything?" And she was just trying to make a point. Oh, you know, they're all women. But then all the people of color said, "Oh, well, I noticed that they're all white." And so, 
um, I think you often have you often have that problem where um, white people who feel like, oh, you know, I get it, I understand racism, so let me go ahead and talk about this stuff, and and and, and let me let me start this conversation. Um, oftentimes, they do that at the detriment of of, of not allowing people of color to actually tell their own voices. Mm-hmm. And one of my biggest problems is that, you know, we've all seen this, I don't even want to say trend, but news media reporting on racism and race relations. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no tomorrow, you know. I mean, it is the special of the day for them, you know, because it gets a lot of traffic. But oftentimes it's written by white journalists or white writers and so sometimes right. it doesn't it doesn't capture exactly what happened you know and that's why it's really important I feel to have people of color to be able to tell their own story so you know why is it that after the Orlando shooting we heard everything from Jimmy Kimmel and we heard everything from you know um, Conan O'Brien but we didn't hear anything from um, from from black and brown um, gay men and LGBT community. Like, mm-hmm. Why isn't it that we didn't hear from them? How come they weren't the voice at the very, very front? Right. Um, and that is something that I think is, you know, for, for white people and even just non-white people, I think we need to understand that and we need to make sure we leave room for those people to be able to tell their own stories. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. We're speaking with Rainier Maningding, who is the uh, creator and founder of The Love Life of an Asian Guy. Follow follow him at VLLAG. Um, Rainier, as we're winding down on time, I know that you also discuss pop culture on your uh, your blog and your page as well. And so I thought we would uh, end our conversation in kind of um, touching on a couple things. I started the show off by asking my young nephew, who's also my producer, <laughs> his thoughts on the Kim Kardashian, Taylor Swift thing. Um, I think that there's some there's there's some truth to what is happening between the two, and that is uh, what Taylor Swift stands for. Um, it's kind of almost like this idea that someone like Taylor Swift, as perfect as she looks, um, could never do anything wrong, mm-hmm. right? And and because there's some yeah. some racial uh, you know issues and undertones to this story as well, in my opinion. Oh, definitely, definitely, and I think that I've I've sort of been tracking it more for the comedic value and like just just watching people, you know, spam uh, Taylor Swift's feed with uh, snake emojis and whatnot because I think it's hilarious. But I mean, the actual way that they try to depict this, um, even though I, I completely feel that Kanye West during his initial sort of stint um, during the Grammys was very unfavorable. Um, I feel like they always painted Taylor Swift as like this white angel and nothing that she did was wrong. And especially in this case, you know, with her kind of threatened to sue people, it's like, you know, just the way that people are commenting it and the way that uh, certain gossip pages are, are trying to paint her as this, you know, the victim. Um, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting commentary on how we sort of... Um, want to protect white women no mm, matter what. Mm. and then you know uh melania <laughs> oh oh my gosh she's <laughs> classy classy potential first lady uh, you know and I, I i the 
biggest irony of that whole entire thing was, um, I forgot who the name was of this governor, but this governor during the the RNC was like, oh, you know, I can't, I can't um, think of anything that um, non-white people have created to, to help civilization. And I'm like, um, so you're, okay, so you're talking about like white people, you know, being like these birthers of everything. And then at the same time, your event has the potential first lady ripping off the current first lady speech, like, um, <laughs> and <it's> sketchy. <laughs> Interesting time that we're, we're living in. And I well, absolutely yeah. value and appreciate the work that you do because it, 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 uh, it gives me that space to just be real about a lot of things. So Rainier, thank you so much for joining me here on the program and discussing your work. And, and, and yes, thank you for your work. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, follow Rainier's work. He's the uh, creator behind the love life of an Asian guy. You can follow him at the LLAG. Don't go away. When we come back, the show continues. I'm going to air uh, a show that I produce for the television show, but it, the interviews are absolutely worth listening to. So don't go away. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way. And I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time. Uh, not as far as our society has come. So I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement, presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, 
the ethics of Oasis. Is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know. You know, it's funny because I still need, to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true. You know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. It's the Michelle Miao Show. Your A to Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Here's Michelle Miao. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me tonight. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Tonight we focus our interviews on those who tell our stories, and when I say our stories, I mean the LGBTQI community. We talk about how we express ourselves authentically. Carrie Donahue and Samuel Friedman are authors of Dying Words, a special project about Jeffrey Schmaltz, who changed the way the media reported on HIV-AIDS. We also talked to Sasha Soprano, who's the producer of the Drag Queens of Comedy, a show that's opening up here in San Francisco May 28th. We'll talk about drag queen life and what drag means to Sasha. Before we get started with the show, let's check in and see what people are saying about the LGBTQI community. I cannot believe Attorney General Loretta Lynch's public address regarding the lawsuit that the DOJ filed against North Carolina's Governor Pat McCrory. Let me also speak directly to the transgender community itself. Some of you have lived freely for decades. Others of you are still wondering how you can possibly live the lives you were born to lead. But no matter how isolated or scared you may feel today, the Department of Justice and the entire Obama administration wants you to know that we see you, we stand with you, and we will do everything we can to protect you going forward. Please know that history is on your side. That is so awesome. Isn't that amazing? It made me cry. Our next quote comes from presidential candidate from the Republican side, Donald Trump. I know, why do I keep quoting this guy? <laughs> I think it's important to know. Anyway, he's been asked about this issue, and that is the issue of transgender rights and access to restrooms. And here's what he had to say. I think that this should be a state's issue. It's become a huge story, and yet it affects Everybody has to be protected, but it's a tiny, tiny portion of the population, and it's become a massive story. So as you can tell, he's kind of uh, putting that on the back burner and not really trying to address it. Our next quote comes from Bette Midler. So Bette Midler, after making a racist comment 
then addresses Azalea Banks, who's the rapper who's been making anti-gay comments on her Twitter feed. So this is what Bet had to say. Twitter deactivated Azalea Banks' account for homophobia and racism. So why is Donald Trump still here? That's actually a pretty good point, Bet. Pretty good point. Our last quote comes from President Obama himself, as he had made an address on this very important day of May 17th. On May 17th, Americans and people around the world marked the International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia by reaffirming the dignity and inherent worth of all people, regardless of who they love or their gender identity. Well done, President Obama. I'm really, really, really going to miss you after this year. That's it about people who are saying things about the LGBTQI community. If you've got quotes for us, head to michellemeow.com. Don't go away when we come back. Our interview with Carrie Donahue and Samuel Friedman. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Welcome back. Our interviews tonight is with Carrie Donahue and Samuel Friedman, who are authors of a special project called Dying Words. It's a story about Jeffrey Schmaltz, who was a New York Times editor who helped change the way HIV AIDS has been reported in the media. Let's get to the interview. You were just at the GLBT Historical Society telling the story of Jeffrey Schmaltz. Um, thank you, first and foremost, for the book, the project that you put together. Um, Dying Words, and the story of Jeffrey Schmaltz. Who was Jeffrey Schmaltz? Well, probably a good way to put it here in the Bay Area is Jeffrey Schmaltz was to the New York Times what Randy Schultz was to the Chronicle and to a lot of journalism in the Bay Area, um, although Randy Schultz got there sooner to the subject of AIDS. But Jeff was this rising star in the Times newsroom destined for greatness, but living this divided life out to his friends, including young reporters like me, but closeted to everyone above him at the paper because it was a very homophobic newsroom at this time in the 1980s, and your career could really be destroyed if, if you came out. And Jeff was outed by collapsing the newsroom with a uh, brain seizure in late 1990, which led to the discovery he had AIDS. And then he just completely remade his life. First of all, he came out. But second of all, when he recovered enough to come back to work, he asked to cover AIDS, to develop an AIDS beat, which the Times had never had. And he did, in a period of about 18 months, a series of really memorable stories, mostly profiles of people with AIDS, ranging from Larry Kramer to Mary Fisher to Magic Johnson, actually Randy Schultz, um, Harold Brodke, and a couple of first-person pieces in which he talked really eloquently and anguishingly about his divided life, being a journalist covering this terrible raging epidemic and being a person afflicted by it. So speaking of the first person account, this new way of journalism that, uh, you know, not very many people were partaking in, when talking about Dying Words, the project, you know, it's not just the book. There's also the radio documentary, uh, which Carrie produced. Um, I am so thankful for that, by the way. Because uh, I really think that it, it preserved and captured that first-person 
reporting that Jeffrey did during the HIV AIDS epidemic. What do you think? Yeah, it was terrific to be able to, Sam had this idea of doing the book, but always heard it as a radio documentary as well. And we, uh, we ended up doing a number of contemporary interviews with people who knew Jeff and worked with him as friends and his sister. Um, but then we were lucky to get access to some audio um, that, from interviews that he'd done in the period in which he was doing the reporting. And uh, that was wonderful. It was great for me as someone who didn't know Jeff to be able to meet him in this way and to understand the way that he wrestled with both a guilt about not having been out previously, not having feeling complicit with the Times' lack of coverage and failure to coverage uh, cover the epidemic in the way that it needed to be covered. So that, and then also the passion and sort of he had a mission that he wanted to show um, people that you didn't, you know, you could have AIDS and be a reporter and an editor at the New York Times. That you weren't sort of just an outcast. You know, he wanted to really set by example. Jeffrey Schmaltz, um, you know, he really changed the way that people were reporting about HIV AIDS. I mean, b before he personally was faced with his own uh, health and his ordeal, you know, what was reporting on HIV AIDS like? I mean, that was at the height of it. It was very, it was, you know, there's still a stigma today, but it was right. very bad, you know, back then. Well, I think you have sort of three distinct phases in the coverage. The first, reprehensibly, is when the mainstream media really doesn't cover AIDS, when it's basically gay and lesbian papers, you know, the advocate in the Bay Area, the New York native, the Washington Blade, they're doing the coverage, but the mainstream news organizations are pretty much ignoring AIDS um, because it's seen as the stigmatized disease of others. You know, probably no set of human beings have been othered the way gays were during the early years of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, this whole discourse of it's their fault, it's God's judgment on them, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, that led to a lot of passivity in the mainstream media. The second phase, maybe by the mid to late 80s, is okay, we've got to cover it. It's an epidemic that's spreading through the entire society. And then it's covered either as a medical story, you know, the search for a cure, you know, drug trials, or a political story, especially in the 92 election when Bill Clinton begins to make it part of a campaign issue. And Jeff really typifies the third phase, which is this is a story about human existence. This is a story about individuals who are struggling against a disease. I know that in the, the book and also in the, the documentary, it was mentioned that an organization like ACT UP and many AIDS uh, you know, activists were critical of even the New York Times and their reporting of HIV AIDS. Do you think that after you know Jeffrey uh, changed the way that he was talking about HIV AIDS. Do you think that that also changed ACT UP's um, relationship with New York Times and, and kind of how they felt about the media? Jeff felt really torn between his devotion to the Times and its you know traditions, traditionalist standards and the call to be an advocate and the tremendous amount of criticism he got from ACT UP. A lot of people in ACT UP thought that Jeff wasn't pushing hard enough that, you know, that he was too much of a company man. So ACT UP's, you know, pressure on the Times continued even into and beyond Jeff's time covering AIDS. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our interview with Carrie Donahue and Samuel Friedman. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. 
Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where, you know, you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that, you know, we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people are, are not just you know tolerating but appreciating diversity and that's the message is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity I think that whoever you are follow your passion follow what you believe in follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Welcome back. Let's continue our discussion with Samuel Friedman and Carrie Donahue. Carrie, what are your thoughts uh, as far as uh, hearing interviews and uh, of Larry Kramer and, and, and ACT UP and kind of his relationship and his thoughts of the media and HIV AIDS reporting? Well, I think I'll sort of think about how he and Jeff, they had a relationship where we were lucky in the early in the process, one of the great things that happened for us, sort of almost a sign that we should do this project, was that Jeff's um, sole surviving family member, sister Wendy uh, Schmaltz-Wild, she had kept uh, micro cassettes of Jeff's interviews. Once he had AIDS, I mean, he, he had PML, a brain infection that was normally fatal within four months. It's really, you know, it's, it's unbelievable that he survived for as long as he did. Um, and he, uh, but he was concerned about his cognitive abilities. He was, he, you know, he'd come up through the times, he was so remarkably talented that, and 
you know, we couldn't even include the number of people who talked about his talent um, and sort of this uh, steel trap mind that he had. But he wasn't so confident in that. So he started recording his interviews. We had these micro cassettes of the conversations he had, and including conversations, the one long one with Larry Kramer, which he was reporting. One of his final articles was called Whatever Happened to AIDS, large magazine article. And in that interview, you can really hear, and I know that he'd interviewed Larry over time, but just... Um, a, a deep respect for one another. There was both a sense of them sharing two men with the same illness, sort of sharing their medication routine, sharing their fears, like what are, what's this like, what's the future? There's so much reporting on LGBTQI issues today. Just the other day, the Department of Justice made their huge announcement in support of not just gay and lesbians, but transgender, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. transgender people, and that was just so significant, right, in our history. What do you think would be going through Jeffrey's mind if you were here to, 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 to see all this, to experience all of this? My guess is that Jeff would feel a mixture of great satisfaction and almost bewilderment at how rapidly the tipping point was reached. Um, he could see some of this coming. I think one of his few stories that wasn't about AIDS that he wrote during 92 and 93 was about Miami not Miami, about Hawaii, starting to move towards um, recognition of same-sex marriage. So he could see the beginnings of that movement. Um, but I think the completeness of the change would have, would have stunned him. And I think it would have stunned him not only to see a government that would, and a Supreme Court that would, you know, take such stands on behalf of GLBT rights, but also I think that the corporate sector would come and for its own <laughs> pocketbook reasons be so supportive. I think he'd be sort of dazzled that when an Indiana or a North Carolina passes an anti-gay law, all of a sudden you have the business sector, Fortune 500 companies saying, we don't want to be branded with your intolerance. We're not going to do business with you. So I think there are a lot of ways that he would have been kind of joyfully shocked by the progress gave you the disclaimer before you walked in here. I'm not a journalist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not, you know, you both are the award-winning uh, journalists. I don't know. I think you would do a pretty good uh, yeah. impersonation. <laughs> An impersonation is good. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I'm here because I want to tell authentic stories of LGBTQI people and, you know, of course, and even those uh, who are not here with us today. So my last question for, for both of you, I'll start with Sam. Um, today, in, in, in terms of reporting and how we're telling LGBTQI stories, it's, it, although we've come a long way, it still feels like there's more that needs to be done. Do you agree? I totally agree. It's, you know, when the Civil Rights Movement accomplished the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, that wasn't the end of the need for great journalism about issues of race. I mean, here we are in the era of Black Lives Matter. And I think that the same thing will be true, you know, we're seeing in places like North Carolina and Indiana, the struggle for tolerance, the struggle for complete legal protections, including anti-discrimination laws, is far from over. And I think there's always going to be the need to do a deep reporting that doesn't exotify and exoticize um, any people who are, quote, different in some ways from what's perceived to be the quote unquote mainstream. So that kind of sensitization of straight journalists is an ongoing project and one that as someone who teaches journalism, I'm always aware of. So um, the story will go on and on. I think one of the dangers and one of the things Jeff pointed to in his very last article 
is if you think it's over, if you think the battle has been won, you get complacent. You get complacent journalistically, and you get complacent as a society, and that's toxic. Thank you, Carrie, and thank you, Samuel. Thank you so much for this incredible work. It's such a special project, and telling the story of Jeffrey Schmaltz is so important to our history. Don't go away when we come back. Our interview with Sasha Soprano, one of San Francisco, and I should actually say, she's one of the finest drag queens I've ever met. So don't go away. Welcome back. Our next interview is with drag queen Sasha Soprano. We'll talk about what drag means to Sasha and also we'll touch on drag being an expression and a form of art. Let's get to the interview. So before we talk about Drag Queens of Comedy, which you've been producing for four years now, yes. congratulations. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about you and you know, talk about how long you've been doing drag and what drag means to you. Yeah, well, lucky for you, I love talking about myself, so <laughs> this is going to be a very easy interview. <laughs> yeah, so how long have you been, how, how long have you been doing drag? Um, I started drag, I think, in 2000, maybe seven. I did uh, Heckelina's Tranny Shack Star Search. And wow. I just remember it was like the biggest thing I could think of for God. I think I wanted to do it ever since I had first seen it on YouTube. I was like, I have to do that. So I did her show. What was the, the interest or the inspiration there? You know, well, I grew up on Castro Street. So I'd seen I, every Halloween, my mother would take us, like would walk us around or drive us through to see all these, um, she would call them Barbie dolls with mustaches. Because back then that was a thing you would You'd do your full drag, but you'd have your little mustache. But I was just so intrigued by all of these, you know, drag queens. Did never knew you could do it professionally. Never, I had no idea that that was, you know, for some the, a career. Um, but yeah, that's what interested me from the beginning. That's so awesome. My mother's fault. <laughs> I love that story, and yeah. I love how your mom's involved in that. Um, you know. Drag means so much uh, to a lot of people, and I always find that the definition ranges. Like everybody has a different uh, definition of what drag means to them. So I wanted to ask you, like you know, personally, like what is drag to you? For some, it's an expression, it's art. What is I, it to you? First off, I don't even define. So I feel like the people that define drag and be like, oh no, it's this, this. That's all they really like have is that definition. Like it just doesn't. Drag could be anything you want. Like, I don't focus on, I mean, there's some people that'll be like, the pageant girls, like, that's not drag over to the, you know, kind of scary monster, like, esque drag, or there's the, there's so many different ones that I don't, there's too much time to waste on talking about who's not doing drag. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps for me, I would rather see who's doing the business of drag correctly, you know, because there's always a formula to figure out and, you know whether or not you're doing it correctly that way. We have a lot of viewers who are not necessarily from the LGBTQI community. Uh, what does that mean, you know, in terms of like the business of drag? Because I've been hearing a little bit of uh, you know, conversations and and some some conflict that may have arise out of uh, people's perception of what drag should be. Yeah. Well, so I mean, some of the most successful shows are anti-drag that are drag. So um, Hecalina's Tranny Shack, I mean, she built herself an empire on being the not drag drag, which I find, I mean, watching her 
on YouTube when I was back in college and everything just as that was just exciting to mm -hmm. me because it was different. You know, I've never really uh, clicked with the pageant girls because San Francisco doesn't really have that much of a pageant system or anything like I mean you go to the south it's like pageant so it's just it's all different on where you are but right. the business of drag is for me it's basically giving people what they want and so for me creating you know what I did which is drag queens of comedy um, I looked up to Lady Bunny who had Wigstock and it was just this epic huge you know festival um, which is just, it was giant and it ran for so long um, Hecalina Peaches Christ with Midnight Mass and everyone had these larger than life kind of totally different none of them um, stole from each other no it was so different you had all these different I was like okay well how do I fit into this with what I'm gonna do and it started with me I actually did a pageant because when you start doing drag for the first time it's basically everyone's telling you oh you have to do this you have to do this you have and you're little and you're just like okay fine I'll do it <laughs> so I did the Miss Gay SF pageant for the Imperials and um, I didn't win at all, I didn't even come close because I went on to do my um, talent and I basically just did stand-up comedy. I went in with a number I was gonna do, but then I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not a dancer, I'm six foot three as a guy with 200 pounds. I was like, I don't think I'm gonna be light on my feet as some of these ladies. So I just said, oh, just give me a microphone. And I basically just read the entire house down. Like, yeah. I was like, thank you so much for inviting me to, you know, this. Like, I just, everything out of my mouth was offensive and rude, <gasps> which they didn't appreciate. But then my table of friends said, this is it, this is what you gotta do. This is it, comedy. You're, you're a comedian. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, some people would just say, no, he's just rude. <laughs> <laughs> and just mean. And they're probably right. But if you formulate being mean and rude all together and you take time writing it, yeah, I guess you're a comedian. So, so drag queens of comedy, is that just a, you know, a, a lot of really talented drag queens who do a great skit and also have a foul mouth? Yeah, about 90% of them are, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the other 10 is just really good PR. Um, the whole, you know, this environment of being political, politically correct, it, yeah. it's kind of a thing right now, it's right? It's boring. It <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you navigate that? And, and I don't navigate it. I just go right through it. I was like, I don't have time for this. Because, you know, it's all about intention. If you intend to go out and hurt somebody and you do that, well, then that's a bit different than if you're trying to make fun of that action of someone actually thinking like that. You know, um, there's so much things that I personally think laughing is like the best is the cure off for everything. If I ever have a bad day, if I'm ever having something, I want to watch a funny movie. It's just how you, people deal with it. But I mean, I've had people, you know, get upset with my um, show or get upset with uh, my set or anything like that, and they'll let me know. And you know, I'm like, well, just you know, I don't intend to hurt anyone, and so none of the rest of the cast. But it's just you have to be able to laugh at yourself to move forward. Not everything's gonna be perfect in life, not everything, even what we say. So how do we get tickets to Drag Queens tickets. of Comedy? Tickets, you're gonna go on to com, and it will have the ticketing link right up on there and you'll just be able to go ahead and find your tickets. Awesome, Yeah. well that's great. Sasha, thank you so much for coming by. No, thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thank you, Sasha, thanks for dropping by the show. Congratulations on all of your success. Don't forget to get your tickets now. There's only two shows on one day, and that's May 28th. Don't go away. When we come back, final thoughts. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on the Michelle Miao Show. 
Tonight we focused our interviews on people who are doing great work in expressing who we are and talking about ourselves in the most authentic way, the most honest way. I think that that is what contributes to change and that's part of the reason why I started the show. I wanted us to be able to tell our stories so that there isn't someone else telling our stories for us and that we can tell them honestly and authentically. Those are two keywords. So if you want to be on the show or if you've got an idea for me, head to michellemeow.com. The Michelle Meow Show is here every Sunday on Coffee TV, Sunday nights at 9.30. Until next time, my friends. Yeah.